This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Seven Republicans are looking to unseat freshman Congresswoman Lauren Underwood in Illinois' 14th District. Rick Pearson from the Chicago Tribune will be here soon to talk about that race. But first, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker issued a formal disaster proclamation yesterday in response to coronavirus or COVID-19. To be clear, this declaration will build on an already robust response that has been developed over many months and is well underway. The move comes after four more residents tested positive for the virus, bringing the total number of confirmed cases in the state to 11. Joining me now with the latest is WBEZ's Mariah Wolfel. Hey, Mariah. Hi, John. So as we mentioned at the top, four new cases of coronavirus confirmed in Illinois. What can you tell us about these cases, how people contracted the virus? Mm-hmm. Um, it's four women all in Chicago. Two of them are in their 50s. The other two are in their 70s. They are all in good condition as of yesterday when the state made this announcement. Two of them have recovered and the other two are in isolation either at home or in a hospital. The two who ha- have recovered are family members of a previously confirmed case, a teacher's aide at a Chicago public high school. They are family members of that confirmed case. Another woman contracted it in California uh, where there have been a lot of cases and then traveled back to Illinois. um, And the other came back from a cruise. So Governor Pritzker issued the disaster proclamation yesterday. How will that help the state's efforts around coronavirus? The proclamation allows the state to pay for medical supplies with its disaster relief funds. So it opens up those funds, state funds. And then it also allows the state to to access, to get in line for federal resources, including dollars, and asking medical es- experts from the CDC and FEMA to come out if they're needed, expedites orders on medical supplies as well, like masks and gloves. The governor says those things aren't needed now. This is a preemptive measure, um, but it puts Illinois with 13 other states who have made similar moves to get in line for these resources that the state will need in the near future. But at the same time, public health officials say the number of cases in Illinois Mm -hmm. will grow. So in addition to this disaster proclamation, are there other things they're doing to prepare for that? Yeah. So I think one of the big areas is testing. The state um, has three testing facilities and says right now that's enough to handle the current number of people it's investigating. Um, There are also so 15 surveillance hospitals who can test people for for the flu. If they test negative for the flu, they can send a sample to one of those three state testing labs. The state says it has enough test kits for now. I know we, we've heard about shortages in other states, but they are talking to commercial lab companies to try to get testing kits from the private industry. And they, they've requested more testing kits from the CDC that they're waiting on. They're also IDPH, Illinois Department of Public Health, is trying to develop their own test as they you know, wait for, for more cases to come in. Well, Dr. Allison Arwitty, Commissioner of the Chicago Department of Public Health, says they're only testing people with symptoms. Let's hear a clip of that. 
Testing asymptomatic people would not be helpful and could result in false negatives, as in someone could have low levels of the virus, but they're not yet coughing, they're not yet spreading it. They could test negative and later get sick. So I just want to emphasize that, as always, we are following the science on this. Mariah, what specific symptoms are public health officials watching out for? Well, they're watching out for a fever, cough, and shortness of breath. Um, they're, as I said, testing people who have tested negative for the flu or who have come in close contact with a confirmed case. They define close contact as being within six feet of someone with a confirmed case for 10 minutes, at least 10 minutes. They really are testing the network around these confirmed cases. I think that's the bulk of the people that they're testing right now. And who is most vulnerable to this virus? As we've heard, elderly people, um, people over 60, the CDC has said, and people with underlying conditions. Um, Health officials are advising those folks to avoid large public gatherings or to take... um, precautionary measures. And when we talk about underlying conditions, are we talking about things that would make you immunosuppressed? Yes, I believe so. So what is the state doing to protect the elderly from coronavirus at this point? The head of the Illinois Department of Public Health has said that she is in close contact with nursing home administrators. I know that we have seen devastating reports across the country of outbreaks within nursing homes that have affected that vulnerable population. Um, They will be pre-screening employees before they come to work at nursing homes to make sure that they don't have something like the flu that could Mm -hmm. compromise the health or the immune system of their patients, Um, and also that they haven't traveled to a high-risk area in the past 14 days. That's the incubation period for coronavirus. Um, So things like that. They're also advising um, nursing homes to limit visitors, Uh, so people under 18 who might be carrying a common cold, who, who, again, could put people at at nursing homes at risk of other sicknesses. Mariah, Illinois was the first state to test for COVID-19, and Governor Pritzker says the state's labs meet its current needs. Mm -hmm. Let's listen. We were among the first states able to test for COVID-19 because we knew to press for that capability. And now we have three testing labs in Chicago, in Springfield, and in Carbondale, all with the ability to run tests. These state labs meet our current need, and we anticipate commercial expansion this week to meet demand for widespread testing. How much do we know about how many people have been tested in Illinois so far? The state didn't have exact numbers on that yesterday. They said that 600 tests have been conducted, but that doesn't necessarily give us um, an exact idea of how many people have been tested. People require anywhere from one to three tests. Mm -hmm. So the state said anywhere between 200 and 600 people and that they could get us exact numbers later, but um, in the hundreds. And who has access to this testing? I mean, how much would it cost? Several major health insurers say that they will cover the cost of these of these tests for COVID-19. Companies like Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois, which is the state's largest insurer, Aetna and United Healthcare are all covering the costs. Officials yesterday stressed that if you think that you can't afford a coronavirus test, but you think that you might be showing symptoms to contact the Illinois Department of Public Health for information on how to get that covered. And then, of course, the the test is being covered by Medicaid and Medicare as announced by the federal government. Well, I want to play a clip of Governor Pritzker talking about what people should do if they start showing symptoms. Let's listen. If you think you might be sick, please take no risks that could endanger others in the community. Call a health care provider first 
and plan to have a visit to your doctor if you're experiencing any symptoms. What else can people do to stay safe? Yeah, um, the governor also said, and I thought this was good good advice, of course, um, to call elderly people in your life to see um, how you might be able to help them um, with running errands so that they don't have to go out and expose themselves to potential infection. Don't hoard supplies like face masks or gloves. Those are needed in hospitals and nursing homes um, and aren't being advised by public health officials. Also, just check in daily on what public health officials are advising. You can get more information online, but to make sure that you're educating yourself. And then um, if you are a vulnerable population, if you have an underlying condition or if you're over the age of 60, to be following guidelines about um, not you know, necessarily taking public transit or going to large, large scale events. Well, as we know, big events coming up in Chicago for St. Patrick's Day, uh, the parade. Are there any plans at this point from the city to cancel that event or any other related events? Yeah, as far as public officials say, the St. Patrick's Day parade is still on. Um, That's a Saturday. Yes. Dr. Already with Chicago Department of Public Health said yesterday that they're talking to the CDC every day for guidelines on whether to cancel large-scale events. Um, You know, we have an election next week. The governor said that he's talking to election authorities to try to relocate any um, polling places that are at nursing homes so as not to expose residents there. But as far as I know, in large as large scale events go in Chicago, um, they're all still on. Where can people access the most up to date information on COVID nineteen? Because there's a lot of information out there, not all of it reliable. Yeah. So the Illinois Department of Public Health is um, providing live updates on the number of cases, number of confirmed cases, number of cases they're investigating, as well as tips and things to think about, like what you should be mulling over now, um, decisions that you might have to make in the future about what to do if your child's school closes or if you can't go to work or if you can't take public transit. They have tips on that. The CDC website um, and also we are providing live updates on WBEZ.org slash coronavirus. That's WBEZ's Mariah Wolfel. Mariah, thanks. Thanks, Jen. In 2018, Democrat Lauren Underwood became the first woman and the first person of color to represent the 14th District in Illinois. She also, at the age of 32, became the youngest black woman to ever serve in Congress. The 14th was a Trump district in 2016, and voters there have historically elected Republicans. But since taking office, Underwood has had one of the most liberal voting records of any U.S. House representative. That's at least one reason why seven Republicans want their chance to go head-to-head with Underwood in November. And voters will decide who to send to that runoff vote in next Tuesday's primary. Rick Pearson is the Chicago Tribune's chief political reporter, and he joins me now with more on this race. Rick, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be with you. So there are many Republicans who want to run against Underwood in the general election. It's a crowded field. Tell us about the candidates. As you said, this is very much a traditionally Republican district. I mean, you're taking in, I call it basically suburban to exurban mm-hmm. from uh, the far west suburbs, then up into McHenry, then across coming east. And, you know, McHenry County, for example, uh, I think they elected one Democrat to Congress since the Civil War, you know, until until Lauren Underwood. So you have this hard, hard Republican pinnings. And of course, that prompts seven people to run. And you have a combination of 
people who have run before and lost. You have uh, two state senators, uh, so that have some political experience there. Uh, you've got a couple of perennial candidates, and you've got some newcomers. Who are the front runners at this point? Well, everybody, I would say, thinks that right now Jim Oberweiss, the dairy magnate and uh, personal investment financial advisor, uh, probably is the front runner. He's had the most money going into this. He's reached into his wallet for a healthy amount of money. But lately, you're starting to see some ads from a gentleman named uh, Ted Grottle from Naperville. Oberweiss from Sugar Grove, Ted Grottle from Naperville. Uh, he's a, a personal uh, investment advisor. And he, so he has some means to him as well. His kind of uh, first time run and his kind of claim to fame is that he was a walk-on on Notre Dame's football team and still, I believe, holds the most points record for uh, having kicked for the team. And he's been using that as kind of a entree into the race for there's people a, get to know him. There's also State Senator Sue Rezin, who has the endorsement of the editorial boards of the Chicago Tribune and the Daily Herald. Tell us about her. Uh, Rezin has been a, a noteworthy female voice in the Illinois Senate Republican Caucus, where it has not always been as diverse. Uh, she has been uh, very big on women's issues with a conservative, a social conservative mindset. But she certainly has played the political game, uh, has had a basically a, a, a perfect record in winning re-election in her state Senate district. One point, though, is that she's from Morris. Morris is just outside the congressional district. Her Senate district does include part of the congressional district. But of course, under, uh, under the Constitution, you don't have to live in the district mm-hmm. to, to represent it. When we look at the role money is playing in this race so far, what can you tell us about that? Well, as I said, Oberweiss, and, and you know, this is someone who has run for federal office frequently with no success. Uh, but again, that probably contributes to some name recognition there. At one point, he had put in a, a million dollars out of his own pocket, uh, but recent campaign finance reports show that he's repaid six hundred thousand of that back as a as a personal loan. Still, you know, you're talking about a half million dollars there, and uh, in, in which is not an insubstantial sum, particularly these days when you've got things that are affordable like digital advertising and social media. Then you've got Gradle uh, from Naperville. He's raised more than $838,000. Resin, about a half mil, but that also includes 200000 in personal loans. Then the rest of the field kind of trims off from there. How does that compare to the fundraising Congresswoman Underwood has done so far? Uh, she, uh, far and away, has is, is got money stockpiled. I mean, and, and that's the advantage, too, of being an incumbent, that uh, she has a, a very, very healthy bank account for whoever is going to take her on in this. Well, State Senator Sue Rezin is um, accusing Oberweiss of a scheme that circumvents donation rules, and some GOP state reps are calling out Oberweiss for what they're calling questionable fundraising practices. Can you explain what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, and, and as I said, Oberweiss has run several times for federal office, and federal campaign rules are very different than the state campaign rules. State's rules are are pretty much lax on what you can spend money for. In fact, Oberweiss got dinged by uh, in a consent agreement with the Federal Election Commission on an earlier run because his dairy had never run commercials before. 
and all of a sudden there were Overweiss dairy ads running at the same time he was running for federal office. So he paid a, a conciliatory agreement or fine, as it were. This time around, the complaint is is that Oberweiss's, uh, according to the complaint filed by Sue Resin, that Oberweiss is encouraging people to donate to his campaign, politicians to donate to his campaign, and in exchange, he will give a larger amount of money out of his state campaign fund. He's very limited on on using federal campaign dollars to give to other political candidates at, at, at the time you're running for federal office. So this is being seen by Resin and others as the potential of trying to circumvent those rules on giving by using his state campaign fund to kind of trade cash for. Hmm. When we look at the messaging during this primary race, are the candidates, the GOP candidates running against each other right now, or are they running against Lauren Underwood? They're running against each other as much as they're running against Underwood, because part of the problem here is you have a group that all basically all support the same things. Uh, You know, they're all behind President Trump. They're all about uh, trying to uh, repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Uh, they're all uh, opposed to abortion rights. They're all kind of in lockstep along those lines. Are there any distinguishing factors between them at a policy level? Not so much on policy as, as it's in personality. And that's where you get things like, for example, uh, you have the newer candidates saying that somebody like Oberweiss who has run several times, he's been a state senator for a while now, his first elected office, uh, or Sue Resin, that they're career politicians and that it takes somebody who's an outsider to kind of weigh in uh, as a factor in this race. Both Oberweiss and Grottle have been supported by the National Republican Congressional Committee for what they call their Young Guns uh, program of candidates, although I think you'd be hard-pressed to consider either one of these guys necessarily a young gun. Well, let's turn to the incumbent, Lauren Underwood. In 2018, she was able to unseat a Republican in what is, as you mentioned, a largely conservative district. How did she do that? Well, one is, uh, and, and it was interesting, uh, we had the seven Republicans into the Tribune editorial board and talked to them, and one of the things I thought was interesting was their take on why did this happen. And it ranged from every thing uh, from Randy Hulkren, who was the Republican three-term incumbent, not working the district, not taking the re-election seriously, not putting the resources in. It was also the fact that they, uh, Catalina Loff, who was the youngest candidate in this seven-person field, she spent uh, about a cup of coffee in the Trump administration uh, for uh, working at uh, the Department of Commerce. Uh, she's being viewed as the uh, anti-AOC Republican Mm -hmm. candidate. But she said it was the fact that Lauren Underwood represented everything that uh, Randy Hulkring didn't, not not as far as ideology, but as far as working the district, presenting yourself as somebody new, talking to the concerns of the district. They all deny that ideology has changed. And I think I'd have to question that because I actually, I'm a creature of the western suburbs. And over the years, what had been reliably Republican is no longer reliably Republican. And there was a mindset that people moved from the city out to DuPage County uh, because they didn't like the Chicago politics. And that was that was kind of the view of Republicans then. But now 
those Republicans, they, they, they don't work those districts. It's people of, of color. It's people of, of different ideology. It's not reliably Republican anymore. And that's how you end up with a seat like that getting flipped the same way that Sean Caston was able to flip Peter Roskam's seat. Do you have a, st- a sense of how her constituents view her work in Congress so far? I don't have a sense. And, and as you point out, her, her record is very liberal. But I think when you look at the issue, the number one issue, like a lot of places, is health care. And the fact that, you know, with her nursing background, though she never practiced, which prompts Republican to call her a faux nurse because everything's a faux these days, the fact that she does talk about health care, she does talk about the fact of uh, pre-existing conditions being so essential. And when you have parts of that district that are older, and are traditionally more conservative, speaking to health care and speaking to personally about those concerns about, you know, pre-existing conditions and, and working on Medicare uh, and Medicare expansion, uh, those have some appeal. It's interesting. Lauren Underwood said a couple of weeks ago that she thinks no one running on the Democratic presidential ticket is helpful to her in her race. Right. Unpack that for us. What did she mean? Well, I think, the, and this is part of a strategy that actually comes from Sherry Bustos from East Moline, the Democrat, who is uh, head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And this goes back to the tussle of Democrats and insurgent Democrats and protecting incumbents versus supporting perhaps more progressive Democrats within the party. And what she was basically saying is, I'm trying to keep the presidential race out of my district. If Bernie Sanders wins, and of course there's some concern among establishment Democrats that a Sanders win could have negative effects down ballot on some of these seats that flipped in the midterms, like one involving Lauren Underwood, like one involving Sean Caston. So her effort is really to try to keep presidential politics away, keep Joe Biden talk, keep Sanders talk away, talk about what can I do for your district, the bread and butter issues and and constituent service. That's Rick Pearson, Chicago Tribune chief political reporter, joining us to talk about the congressional race in Illinois' 14th district. Rick, thanks. Thank you, Jen. And that's a wrap for today's Reset. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. And don't forget to wash your hands. You're not just doing it for yourself, you're doing it for everybody. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.